This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. It's not unusual when I pick a topic for Christianese that the rabbit hole goes a little bit deeper than I expected. And it makes trying to describe whatever that topic is in a clear and well-rounded way a little bit more difficult, which is usually a fun challenge. But this topic has been uniquely difficult because it's like trying to wrap my mind around infinity and then communicate it in a haiku. In this episode, I'm going to try to dig into one of the most essential characteristics of God, a characteristic that informs all of our theology proper, our ecclesiology, our missiology. It's the thing that should wake us up in the morning, but somehow eludes our description. You could probably describe it in a simple sentence in a theology textbook, but the best way I could find to describe it is the scientific findings of Albert Einstein. So hang with me as we dig into the question, what is the glory of God? This is Christianese. If I were to ask you, what is the glory of God? How would you answer? It might take a second, which is okay, because in my mind, it's a little bit hard to put into words. When I think about God's glory, it's a lot of mixed with a healthy dose of But glory is not just this like light and airy thing, it's really serious. So there's a lot of In some ways I kind of feel like those sounds typify glory better than a lot of ways that I can describe it. Because glory is kind of the ultimate Christian buzzword. We say it a lot, we sing it a lot. But if you ask us what it means, well, you know, it's yeah. The thing is, you kind of have to go hunting for a clear definition of glory. If you go back to the catechisms of the church, the teaching that believers use to understand and learn what we, well, believe, they talk a lot about glory, but don't really get into what it means. For example, the catechism for the Catholic Church says that the world was created for the glory of God, not to expand it, but to communicate it. And the glory of God itself, in paragraph 294, consists in the realization of this manifestation and communication of his goodness for which the world was created. Yeah, I'm gonna keep looking. Next, I went to the Westminster Confession of Faith, which talks a lot about glory. That the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever? That God powerfully orders all things for his glory? That one of the blessings Christians receive in Christ is sharing in his glory. That our prayers should focus on all things pertaining to the glory of God. That all believers upon death will be raised to glory. Okay, but what is it? What is God's glory? The Westminster Confession seems to assume that we know what the glory of God is and is telling us a lot about it. 
Now that may have been true for the church in 1648, but the Western church today, maybe not as much. Now you may think all of this is ridiculous because glory is an English word with an English definition. We have it in our Oxford English Dictionary after all. But if we were to rely on English definitions for modern English words in order to understand ancient biblical ideas, we wouldn't always hit the correct theological target. The way that our language is used has evolved over centuries and doesn't always take into account how accurately it reflects ancient biblical Greek and ancient biblical Hebrew. Now, I'm not saying that our biblical translations are wrong, or even that they're bad. Many of them are very, very good. But our common understanding of our language does affect the way that we see God, especially when we think about God and His glory. For us today, glory means renown, beauty, radiance. To glorify in something is to take pride in it. There's a sense of vanity to glory. If someone glorifies themselves or does everything for their own glory, that's a little gross, isn't it? When we see characters in movies or books that revel in their own glory, we cringe, and rightly so. Think of Gilderoy Lockhart from the Harry Potter books and movies. Is God like that? Endlessly fawning over himself in a mirror and hoping that his followers pay him enough attention to validate his ego? Tut, tut. Hardly any of you remember that my favorite color is lilac. But Miss Hermione Granger knew that my secret ambition is to rid the world of evil and market my own range of hair care potions. If we stop at the English definition of glory, it's going to change our perspective of who God is and what he calls us to do. But the way that we think about glory today is not even the way that English speakers have always thought about glory. And it's certainly not the way that ancient Greek and Hebrew think about glory. The word glory first appeared in the 1300s in English, specifically referring to the splendor of God or Christ. It comes from the French word gloria, meaning fame, renown, great praise, or honor. Already that gives us a new sense of the word glory. It is the reason for which God is famous. It's his emanating honor, the reason he's worthy of praise. But let's keep going back. In biblical Greek, the word for glory is doxas, the root of the word doxology. You may know the song by that name. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Doxas means splendor, magnificence, excellence, preeminence, dignity. In the New Testament, it always refers to a good opinion of someone that results in praise and honor. It's not vanity or pridefulness or boastfulness. It is his good reputation, his worthiness to be worshiped, his goodness that goes throughout the earth. Romans chapter 1 says we can clearly see his invisible qualities through what he has made. His glory is seen in his creation. He's protective of his glory because he, by nature of being God, is the only one worthy of worship. But let's keep going. The Hebrew word for glory is kabod. And it has 
an unusual meaning. It carries a lot of the sense of glory that you see in the New Testament, reputation, renown, honor, but it also means heaviness. In Exodus 17, verse 12, Moses' hands become kavod. He's holding his arms up in the air, and they become heavy, and he needs help holding them up. His hands weren't radiant or praiseworthy or famous. They were just heavy. Then in Exodus 28, when God is telling Moses how to craft the clothes for his priests, he says, You are to make holy garments for your brother Aaron for glory and beauty. And this is where the idea of glory clicked in my head. These garments were meant to be beautiful. They were to have splendor and radiance and all those things. These garments were supposed to draw the attention and focus of God's people to the high priest, to have weightiness, importance, or in other words, to have gravity. Glory, God's glory, is heaviness. It is like gravity. Now, what most of us think about gravity is it's the downward force that makes things fall. Isaac Newton was sitting under an apple tree, an apple fell, hit him on the head, and now we know why things fall. But gravity is a whole lot weirder than that. First of all, any object with mass has gravity. So you have gravity, I have gravity, your dog has gravity, the moon has gravity, anything that has mass draws other objects towards itself. It's why planets orbit the sun. It's why the moon orbits the earth and why the tides of the sea shift with the phases of the moon. The bigger an object is or the more mass it has, the more it draws other objects to itself. Simple enough. But what we've learned about gravity since Albert Einstein penned his theory of general relativity in 1915 completely alters the way that we see the universe. What we now know is that gravity is not a force. It is the literal curving of space and time. The universe isn't flat, it bends and moves, kind of like a golf green, causing those who move across it to ebb and flow through space-time. One of the clearest effects of this is that where there is more gravity, time slows down. I don't mean that time feels like it's moving more slowly, but that it literally moves slower. But what does all of this have to do with glory? God's glory is his radiance, his beauty, his goodness, his praiseworthiness. And it should cause us to turn our focus and our attention towards him. Like gravity, God's glory is the curvature of creation that always bends towards him, that should cause us to go into orbit around him. All of space and time bend according to his will and his command. So rightly, we shouldn't give our praise to anyone or anything else. Your life shouldn't orbit or be oriented around anything else but him. But here's the thing, just like any object with mass can orbit any other object with mass, we tend to look at created things, things that should focus on God and proclaim his glory, and say, actually, 
That's what my life is going to be about. Which is the ultimate tragedy of sin, is that you miss the focus of the universe. We trade the truth for a lie. We worship the created thing instead of the creator. No idol, no sin, no desire, no created thing can ever satisfy you because it's not the thing that curves the universe. God is. It's like saying the earth orbits the moon. Our lives should all be oriented around God and glorifying Him. But what does that mean, to glorify God? Are we somehow adding to His glory or creating it? Well, no. Here's an example. You go to an art museum with a friend, and you see a very particular painting that just strikes you. It resonates with you. It speaks to you. It's beautiful, radiant. It draws you in. The first thing that you do is you grab your friend and you say, you've got to see this painting. Look at this. What you're doing is glorifying the painting. You're giving it weight or importance and bending other people's attention to it. You're not changing the painting. You're not adding or taking anything away from it. You're just recognizing it for what it is and causing someone else to put their attention onto it. So when the Westminster Confession says that the chief aim of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, what it's saying is that our entire lives should be oriented around God. That our thoughts, our words, our actions, and affections should all be in line with His character. That the way we live is a public testament to who God is. So, what is God's glory? It's his manifest and recognizable goodness and character that shows him to be praiseworthy and causes us to know and enjoy him. Yeah, that sounds good. We could end the podcast there. But this rabbit hole goes a little bit deeper. There are passages in Scripture that talk about God's glory not as one of his characteristics or his reputation, but as if it's a physical thing. In Exodus, God's glory resides amongst his people. It rests above the ark and on mountaintops. In John 17, Jesus prays to the Father that his disciples would be able to see his glory and that it might be given to them. This is a really weird way to talk about God's reputation or his fame or his honor. It sounds much more like a thing, but it keeps going. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 says that in Christ we are being changed from one degree of glory to another. And 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says that resurrected Christians will receive a glorified body that will have glory not unlike that of the sun or the moon. When we glorify God, it doesn't alter him. But when he gives his glory to us, we become completely changed. There's a reason that when we talk about glory, we use words like radiance or brilliance. Because glory is a lot like light. In high school, you probably learned that light is a wave, or really small electromagnetic waves. And the distance between those waves determines the colors that we see. So light generated by the sun travels all the way to Earth, bounces off of a house or a flower 
or a friend and then goes into your eyes and allows you to see everything around you. And we don't really think about light being present. We simply think about the things that we can see, what the light is showing us. Now that's simple and complex enough. But once again, enter Albert Einstein. His theory was that light was not simply a wave, but that a beam of light is a stream of light particles, little photons that zip through the air. To prove this, Einstein shone a beam of light onto a bar of metal, and he was able to measure little electrons coming out the other side. Innumerable light particles called photons were passing through the bar of metal, and every so often, one would collide with an atom, causing an electron to ricochet out of orbit and leave the bar of metal. The light was irradiating the metal, changing it at the atomic level. This is why when you sit out in the sun, you get a tan or even a sunburn, because light particles are literally interacting with your skin. Albert Einstein looked at light and said, it is a wave, but it's also particles. Light exists in a quantum state where it is both. But Einstein didn't stop there. With his theory of general relativity, Einstein found that light has a speed all of its own. No object can travel at the speed of light, because the mass of any object as it moves that quickly approaches infinity. It's a kind of cosmic speed limit. We can never go light speed, because we are not and cannot be infinite. God's glory is like a wave and that it emanates from him and reveals his infinite perfection and intrinsic goodness to everyone. And like light, it helps us see the world for what it is. It's like that old C.S. Lewis quote, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not because I can see it, but because I can see everything else. God's glory is also like a light particle that interacts with us. When you recognize God for who he is, it changes you. In Christ, we are new creations, moving, as 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says, from one degree of glory to the next. And when you see God's glory, you also realize that we can never be God. He is infinite, holy, separate, completely apart from us. He alone is the gravitational center of the universe. So what is God's glory? It is his manifest beauty and holiness. What does it do? It proclaims his reputation and his praiseworthiness to everyone. What does his glory do to us? It causes us to know him, to be saved, and to become more like him. And what should we do with God's glory? We should live lives typified by worship, not just singing, but through our thoughts, actions, affections, and our words, pointing ourselves and other people towards God. And what is our hope? That when we die and Christ returns, that we shall join him in glory. It is no small thing to encounter the living God.
This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.